Hello and welcome to Keeping It Real, where we're going to dive into the mysterious world of plastic surgery. My name's Alex and each episode I'm sitting down with the respected surgeons Dr Richard Bloom and Dr Kim Taylor from Replastic Surgery and we're going to ask all the hard questions that you want the answers to. Moist and not coming in saying I want to look like Posh Spice or Pamela Anderson. And so it can be quite life-changing for them and um, we see improvements in their self-esteem, their confidence. If someone's had good work done, then no, I don't, I don't believe it is obvious. If you're having a breast augmentation, you know, you don't want to be going to the plastic surgeon who does road trauma. When talking plastic surgery, the horror stories inevitably come out. Unfortunately, with many non-qualified doctors operating both in Australia and overseas, these cases pop up all too often. So today on hand, we have Dr. Richard Bloom and Dr. Kim Taylor from Replastic Surgery, and they're going to reveal some of the worst cases that they've seen. Welcome to another episode of Keeping It Real, Richard and Kim. Hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. All right. Well, so obviously we're talking about some subjects here which, which are pretty awful for some people, which is botched cases. How often have you guys come across people that have had work done elsewhere, which has not been ideal? Look, it's an increasing part of what we see now, unfortunately. So it, it might be 10 or 20% of our, our consultations now, mainly now from local surgery. A lot of the overseas surgery seems to be on the decline, I would say. But there are cowboys out there who aren't properly trained who are doing surgery and um, unfortunately they then often end up um, seeing us to try and get it fixed. Hmm. Do you think, just back to the overseas point, do you think that's because a lot of people, a lot of people are more aware of the problems, like they don't fly to Thailand anymore to have it done? I think that it, it is actually still happening um, but because there was a bit of a culture change a few years ago here and that some local surgeons were offering similar priced uh, breast augmentation in particular to overseas. Um, and so uh, patients then were seeing that as a local option for a, a similar cut price. And, you know, as Richard said, you know, with sometimes the similar similar sort of poor outcomes, there certainly are companies that are still enabling and helping people to have uh, surgery inverted commas, holidays in Southeast Asian countries. Maybe not so much right now with the current virus situation going on, but it has definitely still been happening. Mm. So, Richard, tell me tell me about a case that you've had come in which you want to tell our listeners about. The most common surgery that we see that has been done badly is breast surgery and of the breast surgery, probably the breast augmentation. And there's a whole variety of different things that go wrong. So patients being, you know, a cookie cutter type style surgery where everyone's just getting the same implant just irrespective of what their chest dimensions are and how much breast tissue they've got. And so often a, an implant that's too big or it's placed in the wrong pocket or the pocket is situated incorrectly so it's either too much in the midline or it's too much to the side or it's sitting too low it's bottomed out or there's just no appreciation of the existing anatomy so they end up with other problems like double bubble and 
uh, Snoopy Dog deformities and, and the like. What are those, double bubble and Snoopy Dog? So a double bubble is where the implant has been placed essentially too low and the pre-existing inframammary fold is still imprinted on the lower part of the breast. So you see the nipple and then it um, comes around the lower curve of the breast and then there's a fold and then there's implant and then there's another fold. So they're the two, two bubbles. A Snoopy Dog deformity is where there is, and this is a pretty common one because a lot of these surgeons who are doing it are not skilled to or trained to do a lift. So a patient has some uh, droopiness to their breast and they either try and to overcome that, they try and put an implant in that's way too big and just stretch out the skin of the lower pole and it, it, and they underestimate it. And so there's still breast tissue hanging off the bottom of the implant. And for the women that come in with these problems, I guess, how much does it impact them? They're often devastated because they often feel they've done their research, um, which maybe they've got a bit wrong and they put their faith in the wrong people. And they've often spent quite a bit of money, sometimes similar prices to our fees, and they haven't got the result uh, that they were looking for. And then they're looking at far more complicated surgery, which then also has um, higher costs associated with it because it's longer surgery, longer time in theatre, and also then more time off work. And they've often taken time off work to have the original surgery done. And sometimes they've even had the original proceduralist try to do a, a fix-up as well. So they may have already had you know, one, two, three procedures. And so then when they come to see us, like we're massively on the back foot because they've already had things not go their way, but they've already um, got scars. They've got problems that have been created by that initial surgery and trying to undo or fix all of that is, um, you know, fraught with difficulty for for anyone else that's then looking to do a procedure on them. Mm. Are there any particular cases that stand out in your mind which really illustrate this problem with, with in terms of breast implants issues? Uh, I, I have numerous patients that have, I think as Richard said in the last comment, like that have just had way too big implants placed with the theory that that is going to give them a lift instead of having an adequately sized implant and doing a lift as well. Or sometimes some of these patients actually would have benefited only from a lift and actually been happy. So in the the recent few weeks, I've uh, I think I've had three patients where I've taken out implants and done a lift and all those patients were like, you know what, that that's probably what I should have originally had rather than getting implants placed. So uh, it, it, it's really difficult. Yeah, and we've spoken in previous uh, series about this. Um, that's one of the reasons why Kim and I often will separate out a lift and the breast augmentation because there's certainly a group of patients who you do the lift and they're perfectly happy and they, they don't want to have an implant. So a lot of, a lot of women present with droopy breasts and they think that an implant will uh, solve is the answer to their problem, but sometimes it's it's just a lift. So do you think that there is an idea among some patients that if it does go all wrong, they can just get it fixed again? I think so. I think uh, they don't appreciate that it puts us, as Kim just said, on onto the back foot. And you're often then using techniques that you wouldn't usually need to use. So internal bra techniques, scoring of uh, breast implant capsules, 
glycating capsules, putting even using other materials like mesh to really consolidate the position of the implant because the soft tissues have just been so stretched and are, are out of position. So it becomes way more complicated. It, I mean, there's often a solution, not always, but generally there is. So in some patients with in the breast implant um, cases, the right thing to do is just take the implants out and let everything settle down and then hopefully get back to a level playing field and then start again. Mm. And in terms of, um, we've referred to it before, the kind of one-size-fits-all approach, um, Kim, have you encountered the problems that can result from from doctors that have used that approach? Uh, yes, indeed. So um, just to sort of step back from that, I guess, is the way, if we're talking about breast um, augmentation, which is the commonest, you know, one-size-fits-all that um, approach that some people may have, um, when we do a consultation with a patient, we'll weigh up the pros and cons of having an implant under the muscle versus over the muscle, having a teardrop versus a round implant and measuring the patient to see what is the most adequate size implant on their body. So if the only operation you can do is a smooth round implant under the breast gland and over the muscle, then you're going to recommend that to every single patient. So sure, there's a few patients where that is going to be the, the perfectly good solution. They're going to have no problems um, and it's all going to be fine. But there's a bunch of people that that is not going to be the best solution for them. And so they're the ones that are going to end up with problems. So for every single procedure that we do, there's nuances and variations that have to be tailored to every single patient. So everyone needs to be assessed and being recommended the most appropriate thing for them. The other thing we have in, their, in our rooms for their, our initial consultations is 3D camera. So you can actually put in each and every or different types of and sizes and styles of implants in a patient's their own 3D image to get an idea of what the outcome for them would be and having patients as part of that decision-making process. So it's not you coming to me and I say, this is the implant that's the right thing for you. It's a two-way street in terms of making that decision. Uh, I think that's really important. And we can use that system. It's more difficult, but for patients that already have scars and already have implants or have had other procedures, you can try and modify things on there to get a bit of an idea. But again, it makes it much harder than you're doing that for the first time. So we've obviously covered implants. What about breast reduction? What are some of the the botched surgeries that you've encountered there? Well, it can vary from really bad in infections and wound healing problems to, and these are the more serious ones, sort of loss of the, the blood supply to the nipple. So they're the really extreme cases. Then the more common thing is just the unesthetic result where the shape is, is not uh, right. So the nipple's been placed too high or there's too much lower pole curvature, there's too much breast tissue sitting on the chest wall, or there's too much breast tissue laterally, so still sitting outside of the bra on the chest wall. So some of those things are, are a bit easier to fix than the, the breast implant stuff. Well, what happens if the, if the nipple doesn't get enough blood supply? Can it, can it die? Yes, it can die. So the, the blood supply in the nipple, the way we do it now, is actually very robust. So... It should be fairly reliable if you know your anatomy, but there are patients for whom uh, you, keeping the, the nipple alive is not the right 
approach. So they've got very large breasts and they want to be small and then the blood supply to the nipple is going to be so long if you try and maintain it that the best approach is to do what's called a free nipple graft where you do actually remove the nipple and put it back on as a as a graft. And that can be a great technique and avoids the problem of because it's not just the nipple that would die, it's the tissue that's carrying the nipple as well. So then all if, if you do the use the wrong technique or, or pick the wrong patient, you end up with a tissue that uh, a hole within the middle of the breast and then mm. that can be really difficult to to reconstruct. And I imagine for that person aesthetically that that's really damaging as well as visually as well as mentally. Is that the case? Oh, yeah. The patients no, you've uh, seen? Yeah. yeah, no, it's quite distressing. I mean, we we both in previous life did a lot of breast reconstruction as well. So we're uh, well trained to, to recreate a new nipple and um, you can often get that tattooed and it can actually look pretty realistic mm. and sometimes can't even tell the difference. So it can be fixed? It can be, yeah. But it can take weeks to months of dressings and to get them healed in the, in the first instance to get to that point that they can then have it reconstructed. So it's better to identify those patients where that is going to be a potential problem and address that um, preoperatively and um, make good surgical plan. Um, and as Richard said, um, not try and do a pedicle technique using nipple grafts with a, with a, a good outcome as well. Mm. And moving on to tummy tucks, is there any particular um, patients that you've had come in that really stand out of, of a job that wasn't well done? There's, I think there's two problems I see. There's one patient that springs to mind is where they went to a, a practitioner who offered them liposuction where they clearly needed a, a tummy tuck. And they had significant contouring problems to their skin because the doctor tried to do over liposuck the, the area and so everything just got scarred down. And that that's really hard to fix. I mean, a tummy tuck will help it somewhat. Sometimes we can use techniques like fat grafting and releasing the, the tissue because it's often scarred down. But it's it's hard to sort of recontour um, the entire abdominal wall when that's happened. The the other thing is scar placement for tummy tucks. So the the other big mistake I think people do is try and when they don't think they can cut out enough skin is they they uh, their their way around it is to put the scar a bit higher and that that can it can actually be quite difficult to then lower that scar. And so does that mean it sits, I guess, above the, the panty line? I yes, guess. Yeah. exactly right. And it can also pull like, pubic hair up way higher than oh. where you want it to be as well. And I guess, have you ever had, in terms of a tummy tuck, someone come in that it's just been so bad that you haven't been able to fix it? Oh, I think tummy tuck, you can always fix it. Certainly you can make improve it. Um, lowering the scar, you can lower it, maybe can't get it quite as low as what you would have done if you were doing the surgery, but you can certainly get it lower and to a point where it's um, uh, acceptable. The other... So just on that point, if there are women out there that, that are really unhappy uh, with how theirs has turned out, there is options for them. Oh, there's almost invariably an option, um, but it's about then being you know realistic about what... Uh, we're trying to achieve, and you know, sometimes it might take two two surgeries to get them to the um, position where they uh, they're happy and they've got a good result. The other thing that is a bit more difficult to fix is that large scar around the outside of the belly button, if that's the case. So, um, unless they've still got a lot of extra skin, and you can remove all of that, it, it can be quite tricky to 
make that scar smaller, I guess. Um, now, we've touched on it before, which is overseas. Obviously, it doesn't happen as much, but it is the one that you hear all the horror stories about. Kim, have you ever had a patient that's come from overseas um, that had big problems? Uh, yes, I've actually seen a number. Um, but the most recent one that I can think of is a patient that um, had been overseas and had had multiple procedures done, like way more than what we'd ever um, think safe here. So breast, tummy and thigh surgery. And essentially they had infections of pretty much all the areas um, and had run out of time and money uh, overseas. And so it had some treatment there, um, but essentially it got back on a plane, their flight back to Australia um, quite unwell and essentially ambulanced off the plane straight to the hospital um, and then required multiple surgeries, removing uh, infected and um, compromised tissue that was, you know, doing really, really poorly, um, very, very sick and in hospital for weeks and then reconstructed with skin grafts on their abdomen. So terrible, terrible outcome that, you know, essentially our job was then to save their life um, and get their wounds healed and not about an aesthetic outcome. Um, So, you know, for want of maybe saving small amount of money by going overseas, um, it's, it's, it's surgery, it's not a holiday. And so it's really important that people are doing a lot of research locally ideally, um, and finding someone that is close to where they are that is well-trained and knows exactly what they're doing. In terms of obviously it's all well and good talking about getting a good surgeon, but how do you actually find one, Richard? Uh, So I think the first thing to check is the APRA website, so the medical board, and look up. If you've got an appointment to see someone, look their name up and see what their qualifications are Uh, through the medical board. So if you're seeing someone for surgery, they should be listed as a specialist surgeon. And if you're seeing someone for plastic surgery, they should be listed as a specialist plastic surgeon. If they're listed as a GP, they are a GP and they're not trained to be a surgeon. The second thing I think is to um, look at uh, a surgeon's website and social media and look at some of their before and after photos. And if anybody's doing a significant amount of work in this area, there should be plenty of uh, before and after photos that you can check and just see that they actually do do the work. Then once you meet the surgeon and their staff, make sure you like them and you feel that all of your answers uh, or your questions have been answered because if you don't feel listened to before the surgery, it's highly unlikely that you're going to be looked after after the surgery. And then the another more objective measure would be to look at the hospitals that they work in. So, and again, there are websites you can check and make sure a hospital is accredited. But if someone is operating out of their own office, it's likely it's not a hospital and they're doing that because they're not accredited to work in a hospital. So you can check and make sure that a hospital that you're having the surgery in is accredited. And obviously Kim and I work with big hospitals that have all the latest equipment and all all, um, qualified staff, which uh, makes a really big difference. Do women say that a lot of times that they had an instinct that it probably wasn't the right uh, practice or surgeon? Yep. I I think uh, I do hear that a lot. Um, It's often they say they felt rushed 
They felt rushed during the consultation. They felt that the doctor wasn't listening to them or they were taking phone calls on their mobile phone in the middle of the consultation. I hear that that sort of stuff a lot. The other red flag I hear from patients is that they felt rushed to book the surgery. So they have a consultation then immediately after the consultation, the, the staff trying to lock them into a date and, um, and book their surgery and get them to pay a deposit straight away, which is against the medical guidelines anyway. Um, they'd, they'd be uh, a couple of the, the red flags that patients who then come and see me say, you know, that they were a bit alarmed when they heard that. The other things would be that you don't actually meet the surgeon um, either mm. initially or it's, it's like a really, really hard process to actually meet the surgeon. Um, and uh, as Richard said about being rushed, I, I take a thorough, and um, we both do medical history. So we ask about the area that patients have concern about, but other surgeries that they've had, other medical um, uh, diseases that they may have, medications that they're on. And even that process, which doesn't take all that long, it's like five to 10 minutes, um, many patients would say to me, wow, you're so thorough. Like I've no one's ever asked me these sort of things before, which mm. usually makes me quite astounded because I'm assessing whether someone is suitable for surgery, um, both both physically, medically, um, and it's the right procedure that they're, they've come in to talk about and also mentally as well. So you, you do need to spend a reasonable amount of time actually chatting um, to, to patients to be able to assess all those things. Mm. So finally, as we wrap up, obviously the the most important part there, I guess, was that a lot of practices rush women into this. Is there any reason that a woman should be rushing into this or do they pretty much have as much time as they need to really think about it and what they want to get done? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a big decision. Um, and so we would never rush someone to have surgery. We try and fit, fit them into their their timeframes always. Um, but once we've seen a patient, if we think that they're appropriate for the surgery that they want and we can achieve the results, then unless something significant changes, they could you know, book their surgery anytime going into the future. If enough time has elapsed, and I, I don't have a timeline on it necessarily, but if six or 12 months has elapsed from their consultation, it, we would usually then get them to come in again and just make sure nothing has changed and also make sure everything we've discussed is fresh in their mind. So, but as long as you remain fit and healthy and, and you know, no major weight fluctuations or other surgeries on the area of bo the body that we're operating on, then patients can defer their surgery for as long as they like. The other thing there's not a limit on is how many times you come in to see us and discuss potential surgery. So um, if you feel like you're still unsure, or if you haven't had uh, all your questions adequately answered, um, we've got a load of information on our website and on our social media, which most people have read and they're all over it by the time they come for a consult and have min minimal questions. But um, there are people that are still unsure and they're not they're still maybe deciding between a couple of procedures. Um, by all means, come back and come back in with a loved one, discuss it with important people in your life. And I guess if we have any listeners out there that they have had something done and they're not happy with it and they 
want want to fix it, then um, your guys' website, I'm guessing, is a good port of call to start the journey. Sure. It can be fixed, I think, is a very important message to get out there. Look, thank you very much for doing this special episode with us, Kim and Richard. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Keeping It Real. To keep up with our next episodes, go and subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you have further questions or want to take the next step, visit www.replasticsurgery.com.au or follow Re on social media. 